0: our pastor in training has just taken us through the book of Zephaniah in the last few Sunday evenings. And not to be outdone, uh, I've decided to draw us into another one of those little books in the Old Testament, another one of those 12 minor prophets. Tonight we're going to look at the book of Malachi. Uh, It's a small one, but thankfully it is an easier one to find because it is the very last book of the Old Testament. So if you want to find it, Find the Gospel of Matthew and just go one page back and you've got Malachi. But before we read Malachi, can I just give you 20 seconds of context? Uh, If you've been with us over the last few months, you'll have heard quite often in the evenings of the big story of God's people. How they were chosen, how they did not and would not obey him. How he sent them into exile and then how he graciously brought them back. We were reading um, weeks and weeks ago the story of Nehemiah. And how he led the rebuilding of the walls to this people who had returned. Malachi, so it seems, comes just a little later in their story. God's people have been back in the land for a while. But it really is a major anticlimax. There there are some exciting moments. They they finish rebuilding the city wall in just 52 days. There's great rejoicing. Uh, They relay the foundations for the temple and rebuild it. There is... Great rejoicing mixed with tears at how feeble it is compared to the previous glorious temple. Israel's a million miles from the glorious kingdom it once was. How the worship's going on in the temple thanks to Ezra, but even a casual observer might say that they were just going through the motions, that their heart wasn't really in it, and perhaps, perhaps we should have some sympathy for them. Doesn't it look a bit like God has let the side down? We have the benefit of perspective. We can look back and see what was coming next. But you have to feel a bit for them, living in that dip of hundreds of years of this apparent dead end. That's where we are, and that's where God speaks. So come with me to Malachi chapter one, and let's listen together. We're gonna take it in a couple of chunks, and let me pray. Father God, as we approach your living and active word, Please, tonight, would you make it living and active by your Holy Spirit? Please, Lord, use me. Work in our hearts to accomplish what is pleasing to you. Might your word be that powerful thing you tell it is which smashes rocks. May our hearts of stone be broken again by your powerful word. Amen. So, Malachi chapter one. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Uh, Edom might say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says. Oh, they may build, but I will demolish. They'll be called the wicked land, our people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And we're going to stop there for a moment. Malachi has a bit of an unusual style. It's a bit like an argument between God and his people. God makes a statement. Uh, His people respond with a challenge to that statement, and then God provides evidence. And the first statement he makes is a critical foundation as we think about the wider book. The first statement is, I have loved you. God has loved Israel. Uh, He's chosen them specially over all the other nations. He's chosen them specially even among their own family line. Uh, That's the foundation for everything else God is going to say to his people. That's what it's all built on. God has loved Israel. Israel. Now he talks about loving Jacob more than loving Esau and perhaps those names will ring a bell if you know your Bible. God's people started with this great patriarch Abraham. But the name Israel actually shows up a little bit later. Abraham's grandson is this guy called Jacob and God renames Jacob Israel. He's a father to twelve and those twelve become the twelve tribes of Israel. But this is what you need to know about Jacob for tonight. If you don't know these stories, back to front. What you need to know about Jacob is that Jacob had a twin brother. A twin brother. Another brother who God didn't choose. God didn't choose Esau. In the same way as Jacob's family became the nation of Israel, well, Esau's family became a nation too, the nation of Edom. That's why the name Edom shows up there in verse 4. Now the idea of God choosing some people and not others or even choosing one twin and not another, speaking of somebody who has twins, that's a very challenging idea for us. There's a danger we can get all uppity and we can think, well that's not very fair, like we would do a better job of being fair than God would or dare I say it, that God is just not fair. I'm not going to spend much time on that objection tonight because I don't think it's the key thing for us in this chapter. But if you don't like the idea that God chose some people and not others, you are not the first person to find that a difficult thing to swallow. And um, can I direct you to the book of Romans tonight and to chapter 9? And in that chapter, the apostle Paul wrestles with exactly the same difficulty. So if you want to watch what great saints, followers of Jesus, do with this challenge, then Romans 9 is the place for you to go and to explore. He picks up on exactly this verse, in fact. So if you want to find out more, that's something homework for you, okay? Homework. The point for us tonight is that God has chosen a people and he's loved them. Israel could look back through their history through their nation's history, and they could see again and again and again that God had poured out His love towards them, that He had delivered them gloriously from Egypt through the plagues, through opening a whole sea, that He had carried them alive through a desert wilderness for 40 years, that He had given them a promised land. They had so many things they could look back on. But the text here points them to a different set of evidence. The simple fact that they had survived While others pass away, even those close to them. You see, the people of Israel had continued as a people. Oh, sure, it hadn't gone well. The northern kingdoms were destroyed by the great empire of Assyria. The southern kingdoms driven back to a single city, conquered, exiled. But despite all of that, Israel was not stamped out, not gone, not wiped away. Israel as a people continued. God brought them back. He brought them home He restored them. Edom, on the other hand, this nation descended from Esau, well, Edom, their twin people, would come to an end, uh, a full stop. Like, as it turns out, so many other great nations of history, people you'll only read about in books and never see anymore. It is remarkable, is it not, that Israel has survived through all of this. That's what God is pointing them to here. So the foundation for what's going to follow in this book is God's special love for his people. The way he saves and delivers them. And it's very tangible love. It's love each one of them would know about personally. Wondering what this has to do with us? Let's join the dots. Okay. Um, Not many of us are Israelites, but if you'd call yourself a Christian today... If you call yourself a Christian, you have this in common with Israel. You are chosen and you are loved. Right? You are chosen and you are loved. Do you remember what we read earlier in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He, that is God, he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Those same words, loved and chosen. And where's the evidence for us? So Israel have this evidence. They're still alive. Other nations have passed away. What's the evidence for us? Well, Ephesians tells us, verses 7 and 8, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Where's the evidence for us that we're loved and chosen? The apostle Paul puts it this way elsewhere. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have tangible evidence of God loving us and choosing us. Christians, we are a chosen people. Uh, we're a deeply loved people. This chosen and loved status is the foundation for what comes next in Malachi. And it's not just something ancient Israel has. It's something that we can share too. But let me take just a moment to speak to you. Uh, if you are here, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm really glad you came along tonight. Uh, you're really welcome uh, among us. But can I, allow, I ask you to allow yourself to imagine how might it feel to be chosen and loved by the God of the universe. Just explore that thought for a moment. Just imagine. What would it be like if the God of the universe chose you and loved you? What would it be like if the God of the universe would give his most precious thing to rescue you? That is the love God has for his chosen people. Uh, enough to do anything to go anywhere, to break through any barrier. And if you are wondering here tonight, well, am I one of those chosen ones? Just the fact that you are wondering that suggests that God is busy working on you to break in and show you that he loves you. So can I encourage you just to let that thought run on in your your mind? Um, You are hereby absolved. You may tune out for the rest of this service and think about the amazing love God has for you, what he's willing to do for you. Have a look at that passage again in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 we looked at. Just read through that and enjoy what God has done. The rest of you, stick with me. We're going to press on in Malachi. Now we've got this foundation in place, so let's read again. We're going to read a bit more Malachi, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Or try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets in, every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, oh, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but Then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Sharp words, aren't they? Sharp words. But the logic is pretty straightforward. Malachi addresses the priest. You see that in the middle of verse 6? It's like an extra long verse, verse 6. But in the middle, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. And he points out how their actions betray them. He starts with two relationships. Almost everyone would understand, right? A son honors his father. That still makes sense. Still happens today, right? A slave honors his master, or today we might say a worker honors his boss, or a student should honor his teachers. Well, that happens somewhat, perhaps slightly more in some industries than others, but it happens a bit. You can see the pattern. You get the picture. If the big, big, big boss of your company suddenly shows up in your office and says, I would like you to work on this project, well, you get going on it, don't you? You're probably going to drop everything and get on with that thing. If, if you had a great teacher, if you had a world-class teacher, you'd listen carefully to what they said. If you didn't agree, you'd probably at least think for a moment about whether it was you rather than the teacher who had it wrong. So this, this pattern of honoring people still makes some sense in our world. Well, God turns the tables. So he says, fine, well, you call me your father. Uh, you call me your master or lord. Well, where is the honor? You understand how these relationships work. You say you understand how these relationships work. You show you understand how these relationships Where? Where is it? Why aren't you doing this right? In your relationship with me, I am your perfect father. I am your perfect master. And we look at how it is they're not showing the honor. They act all innocent. They're like a kid caught with his hand in the biscuit tin. Who, me? What do you mean no honor? I'm honoring you. So he accuses them of sloppy, of second-rate animal sacrifices, not giving up the prime specimens, which are the ones they're meant to, popping in the the dregs instead, you know, the sheep with the slightly dubious leg, or the three-legged one, obviously, um, which I've heard of in our midst. Um, If you're thinking, animal sacrifice, okay, that's cool. I want you just for a moment to remember that everyone out there in the street is thinking, what is this animal sacrifice thing? that's really weird what's going on it's something that's quite intuitively i think revolting nowadays to most people so we've got to think a bit about what's going on with animal sacrifice so we can process this and bring this into our world Um, i think we can get a bit of a sense for animal sacrifice by winding back to the very first animal sacrifices people make anywhere in the bible and these are back in genesis chapter four um two guys cain and abel um two brothers a farmer and a shepherd The farmer offers some of his crops, the shepherd offers some of his flocks. Now, what's going on with this sacrifice thing? What we're seeing with them making those sacrifices is a recognition of God's providence. Uh, Their productivity, the farmer, the shepherd, is only possible, only possible because God was at work effectively. They're giving back to God some of what he gave to them in the first place. Right, Cain, the farmer guy, did not make the crops grow. He knows that very, very well. Sure, he planted them. Perhaps he weeded them if he was diligent. But he didn't make them grow. By himself, he is unable to achieve anything. And so, in a way, everything that comes up from the ground belongs to God. And he gives some of that back. It's the same for Abel. The shepherd guy, right? He protects the lambs from wild creatures. Sure he does. He fights them off. He leads them beside water. He makes them get some pasture. But he couldn't make them multiply. Uh, He knew that. He recognizes he's unable to produce things in himself. Everything that results from his work belongs to God. Without God, he would have nothing. So he gives some of it back. Now that's some of what's going on with animal sacrifice in the Bible. Uh, A recognition that productivity, that fruitfulness in labor is really God's doing. It's more obvious if you're a shepherd or a farmer, right? But still for any of us, if you're able to accomplish anything, that is because God is at work. That make a bit of sense perhaps of what's going on here with these sacrifices. Now I know there are other classes of sacrifice. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten that. We'll come back to that in a minute. God is meant to get the best of what is given. It's a recognition that without him, they wouldn't have just a little bit. They'd have none at all if God wasn't at work. So he gets the firstborn lamb. He gets the first fruits of the harvest. And instead, what he's actually getting here in Malachi is the leftovers, the remnants. Now, it's not that God finds firstborns more tasty than other ones. That's not what's going on at all. It's the heart behind the sacrifice that matters. That's why it's the best that should be given. But they're not just doing the leftovers and the remnants. It's worse than that. Look at verse 13. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. They're saying, what a hassle it is to have to give some of this back to God. What a hassle. What a a drag for me to have to give some of my flock up. They're, They're sniffing at it. Uh, I think the best sense for that is you, you ask a teenager to clean up their room, they're like, fine, sure, I can clean up my room, but it's stupid. God says to them, well, fine, don't bother. Don't bother with these half-hearted sacrifices. Don't just go through the motions. Close the temple doors. This only happens once with King Ahab, a time of terrible evil. Close the temple doors, nothing more. Light no fires, I don't want it. You see, these sacrifices, rather than bringing glory to God, rather than recognizing how central and critical he is in every piece of productivity in the entire world, these are half-hearted, pseudo-sacrifices of the leftovers. And even that, they think it's a drag to have to do. Now, remember the foundation we built on, okay? where we started with is God loved and chose this people, delivered them in incredible ways, has poured himself out for them, What sort of response is this? What sort of response is this to God's love? No wonder he is furious. And as you read the tone here, he really is furious. Okay. But so what? 25 centuries ago, some priests were half-hearted, just going through the motions, and God was not happy. That's interesting. But what on earth does this have to say to us today? Does it have anything to say to us still? Well, like we already looked at, we share the same foundation of God's choosing and his love poured out for us. Perhaps even better evidence in that Christ died for us. But I think there's more we share too, for starters. We are called priests. Uh, The Apostle Peter writes for the first time in the Bible and calls us a royal priesthood in one place, a holy priesthood in another. Revelation 1.6 says Jesus made us a whole kingdom full of priests. And that's not just the pastors and the paid staff here. That's every one of you. That's every Christian. More than that, just like these ancient priests were to make sacrifices we're called to make sacrifices too. Wait, you're thinking, this doesn't sound right. Well, hang on. Yes, Jesus was the once for all sacrifice for sin. He died in our place on the cross, bore in his body our punishment. But here's the thing, in the Bible, sacrifice is not only for sin. That's not the only type of sacrifice you find in the Bible. And we can start to think that because Jesus' sacrifice is so significant in what we believe in our lives as Christians. This is the, the critical big thing. We add nothing to that, and it needs nothing added to it. I'm not talking about sacrifice for sin, but there's another category of sacrifice um, called thank offerings, broadly speaking. I remember we talked about the very first sacrifices by Cain and Abel right at the beginning, those were not sacrifices for sin. They were giving back, giving back some of what God had given to them, recognizing their dependency in everything on God's hand. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 calls to us about exactly this. Paul, who's writing, has just spent 11 chapters laying out the sufficiency of Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sins. How that restores our relationship with God and gives us new life. Eleven chapters laying that out. Starts chapter 12 with this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Sacrifice? Hang on, Paul, isn't Jesus the sacrifice? Well, yes, Jesus is the one sacrifice for sins. But I think what's in view here is this kind of thank-offering sacrifice, this giving back to God some of what he's given to you. And tonight, if you call yourself a Christian, what has God given you? Your life. He's given you your life. Uh, Through Jesus, you have moved, the Bible tells us, from death to life. Life from God's enemy to his friend, to his very family. You have been given life by God, all of your life. So we're starting to make some connection here, actually, with these ancient priests. We're we're more like these people than we might imagine, right? We're chosen, we're loved, we're priests. We are to sacrifice. But it goes further. The truth is for many of us, and for much of the time, We're like them in that we just go through the motions. Ah, We're so often not giving him the best of our lives or our time, the first fruits of our productivity. So often don't we just give him the leftovers, the stuff that we can't really think of anything else to do with, stuff that's just not worth that much to us. Worse than that, Isn't it easy for us to think, what a burden, what a hassle, what a bother it is to sacrifice my time and my precious things and my plans to God? You know what God says to that? He says, try it on your boss. Try it on your boss. Try it on your teacher. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to give your boss just your leftovers. The same level of effort and sacrifice you give to God. A few minutes here and there. Nothing too costly. Just a bit of time before I go to sleep. Yeah, I'll be in work tomorrow from 11 until 11.05 p.m. Half asleep. Will that be okay? What would your boss say to work like that? If you're at uni, how are you going to get on in your degree if you're willing to give it 15 minutes every morning when you're half asleep? And what does it teach the world around us when we live these lives that look so half-hearted, when we give God the leftovers? Are we teaching them the truth about who God is, about what he's done, about how valuable and significant that is to us? Aren't we, in fact, teaching them this whole Christianity thing? It's just a hassle. God, just not that important to me. If you were with us this morning, That's the one talent servant right there, isn't it? This whole servant thing is a drag. I never wanted to be a servant anyway. If I could just get this talent out of my hands and into the ground, I can get on with my own stuff. And the irony of that sort of half-hearted devotion, which is very easy to practice, trying to squeeze God into as small a corner as possible, get away with as little as possible, just enough to tick the box. Well, the irony is that is a waste of time. That's a total waste of time because a half-hearted sacrifice is ultimately no sacrifice at all. Here, God rejects it. Close the doors. Don't bother lighting the fire. If that's what you're gonna bring, don't bother. What we give speaks about who it is we think we're giving it to. So what does the way you sacrifice your life for God say about who you believe he is? I wanna take a few more minutes just to help us get practical and think about what does it really look like to offer ourselves as a sacrifice towards God? And to help us with that, we've got to ask, what is it meant to do, right? Why does he want this sacrifice from us in the first place? Time for a bit of detective work. So I want you to pick up Malachi again. And I want to know, how many times does God's name come up in Malachi chapter 1? It's not that long a chapter. How many times does God's name come up? When you're ready, vote with your fingers. How many times does God's name come up in Malachi chapter one? Ten? I don't think it's many as ten. A lot. A lot, right? It actually seems to be at the root of his issue with the people. It's not just that they were pronouncing it wrong or something like that, saying it with a lisp and that was irritating him. Uh, When God talks about his name here, what it signifies is his reputation, uh, his character, his fame, his renown. That's what the issue is. That's what matters to God in this. The reason God chose Israel, the reason he loved them, the reason he poured himself out for them was for his glory. His fame, we find this again and again as we read through the story of Israel. That's what their purpose was. That's the purpose they're failing here. That's what Malachi calls them out on. You are bringing disgrace to my name rather than glory, but my name will be great. Let me draw the line back to us again. If you remember that Ephesians reading to the praise of his glorious grace. is the echoing refrain throughout that reading. To the praise of his glorious grace. God's glory is the end game. It's the purpose, it's the reason he chose you and loves you is for his glory. That's the reason God is looking for us to give our whole selves back to him is for his glory. That's what our sacrificing our lives is meant to do. It's meant to bring God glory. And how do we make a sacrifice that brings God glory? In response to his love and choosing. How do we actually give ourselves in pursuit of God's glory? This one shouldn't be hard. If you've been at Charlotte Chapel for a while, the writing is, as they say, on the wall, just out there, in fact. Let me remind you of our vision statement as a church. Why do we exist? To glorify God. By making disciples of all nations. That's our church vision. We glorify God by by making disciples of all nations. If you had any questions about how it is you could sacrifice your life in pursuit of God's glory, there's your answer. Making disciples. That's the key way we pursue God's glory. Now, how do we do that with the whole of ourselves? Link. sometimes we think of our life as a bit like a, a massive pie chart, right? And it's got all these different wedges in it. It's got the, it's got the work wedge, typically quite big for some of us, right? It's got the sleeping wedge, got to sleep, quite big, that one now and then. It's got the eating wedge. Uh, it's got the family time wedge. It's got the chillax and Netflix wedge. It's got all these different wedges in it, and somewhere in there is this kind of glorifying God wedge or this making disciples wedge. And we can think our big goal is to just kind of grow that wedge, make it fatter and fatter by squeezing everything else out. But isn't that only going to ever take us so far? I mean, most of us are still going to have to work some of the time, whether we get paid or not for it. And we're not going to cope that long if we squeeze out every ounce of recreation from our lives. And eating faster, what's that going to do? It's going to give me indigestion. Sleeping less, just going to get really cranky. So... How do we give God the whole of our lives? We can't make that pie chart slice the whole thing. I wanna give you another way to picture our lives. Imagine like a tree trunk. Like a tree trunk, a tree trunk is really just a tree wrapped up in more tree with more tree, and extra tree on the inside with tree, tree, and tree, and tree, and tree. Built around one center. So instead of trying to grow this God slice, and shrink all the other not-God slices in our life. Uh, We can look for ways to place God at the center of everything we do. The way we work, yeah, but the way we rest, too. Uh, The way we enjoy pleasure, the way we perform our duty. We can make our pursuit of God of his glory, and that means our pursuit of making disciples permeate every area of our lives. So we still need to work but we can work with this as one of our key aims. The reason we get out of bed and head into the office, well some of what I'm doing here is I'm going to the office to make disciples. And we can still take time to love our family, but you know what? We can love our family with this aim, to see them grow into full-blooded disciples. We can weave this goal of disciple making for God's glory into every aspect of our life. Let it shape and drive how we do everything and what things it is that we ultimately choose to do with our life. And I hope we can do this wholeheartedly, rather than half-heartedly and begrudgingly like these priests. And why? Out of devotion in response, not out of lifeless dead duty. Not giving you a set of boxes to tick, but a way to show your love to God. That verse we used from Romans 12, okay, giving your lives as a sacrifice. It reminds us of exactly this. It starts with, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, that's the the power and the drive. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. As we see again, his love poured out for us should drive us more and more to delight in pursuing his praise and glory. One thing as we close, God's purpose will prevail. It's right here in Malachi. We read it today, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations says the Lord Almighty. That's the end game. This is going to happen. This is the future of the world. This is where things are going. And we have two choices really about this. We can sit in the stands and watch while God does this and makes his name great in every nation. Or we can choose to find our way down onto the pitch and join the winning team. I want to encourage you to go and make disciples to the glory of God, giving your lives as a sacrifice in view of God's mercy. Don't bother with a half-hearted version of this. You see here what God thinks of a half-hearted version of this. Shut the doors. Don't light the fire. Don't bother with a half-hearted version. Make it your determination to give your whole life to this. Let's pray.